Everybody seems to think that the most offensive thing about the Benny Hill show for modern audiences is the sexism. And it's true that the programme is guilty of the objectification of women. Most of them are present only to flash lots of cleavage and wear short skirts. There are also a lot of sketches and musical numbers featuring Benny Hill and associates in drag, parodying both specific female celebrities of the time and women in general in unflattering terms. But the thing I'd forgotten about it was the sheer amount of blackface and yellowface involved in sketches. Hardly a show goes by without Benny Hill or Bob Todd blacking up, the latter often portraying the old Southern family retainer in the various Tennessee Williams parodies, or sporting an Afro wig as Mark, one of the assistants of a man called Backside, now Ironside parody. The level of race, racist stereotyping involved is relatively mild compared to contemporary TV shows. Although the sketches where Benny pretends to be a Chinaman that no one can understand, often joined by Bob Todd blacked up as a generic Indian stroke Pakistani, the two nationalities being interchangeable in 70s TV, are utterly cringeworthy. Although I cannot deny that back in those more innocent times as a child, I laughed at these sketches. Seeing them now, though, it's hard to understand why. To be fair, as time went on, such sketches became less prominent as attitudes to race on TV gradually changed. But in between all the sexism and racism, you can see glimmers of some genuine satire. One of the very last shows features a parody of the then popular consumer affairs programme The Cook Report, focusing on allegations that presenter Roger Cook deliberately provoked the often violent confrontations that were a highlight of the show. And indeed, um, yeah, in this one, not only does, does he do this, his crew are incompetent, get him to the wrong house to knock on the door and make accusations. And of course, he finds himself being filmed by documentary film crews who are also filming those film crews, filming them filming him in a, in a satire on the popularity and proliferation of this sort of format on TV in the 80s, certainly here in the UK. And even in the earlier shows, you can find attempts to satirise such things as the hypocrisy of TV commissioning policies. One sketch features Hill as a supposedly liberal-minded TV producer for Thames TV, having a telephone com conversation with one William Shakespeare, who's trying to get his new drama Othello commissioned. Whether the producer likes the plot, he begins to balk at the idea of both leading male parts being black and the, and the leading female... and um, and. and saying not that it bothers me, of course, but the network just isn't too keen on that sort of thing. And finally put off when he finds that the fem lead female character is white, just too controversial for this network. Moreover, many of Benny Hill's impersonations are very good. His Orson Welles and Great Mysteries with Orson Buggy, for instance, is surprisingly effective, as were his Roger Cook, Dickie Davis and various parodies of 70s newsreaders. Although I have to say that, the poss that possibly the most disturbing thing for a modern TV audience I've seen was an impersonation of Rolf Harris, who nowadays, of course, is considered so disgraced that his name cannot be mentioned on TV, let alone any of his TV shows screened.
most people aren't even aware that there was a remake of Stagecoach in 1966. Despite doing okay at the box office, it has subsequently vanished from view, rarely ever shown on TV and certainly not enjoying the iconic status of the original. Indeed, contemporary audiences are probably more familiar with the awful 1986 TV remake, which still gets frequent TV showings. In truth, though, the 1966 version isn't a bad movie, judged on its own merits, mustering a decent cast of character actors, boasting some good outdoors photography and some well-staged action sequences. But in comparison with the original, it lacks a strong leading performance. Alex Cord makes a poor substitute for John Wayne as Ringo, his performance far too bland and low-key to provide a focus for the audience. So low-key, in fact, is his performance that the supporting characters make far more impact and are ultimately far more memorable. Van Heflin as the Marshal, Bing Crosby the drunken doctor, Mike Connors as the gambler Hatfield and Red Buttons as the liquor salesman all offer far stronger and more sympathetic performances. Van Heflin in particular providing far more of a sympathetic focus for the audience than Cord. Even in his scenes with female interest Dallas, played with vigour and charisma by Anne Margaret, Cord struggles to make an impression, failing to create any chemistry with her. Gordon, Doug Gordon Douglas, a pro prolific director of big-budget star vehicles for the likes of Frank Sinatra, Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis at the time, took the reins of the remake and generally does a decent job. Never critically lauded, Douglas had a long career in Hollywood, starting out directing shorts and B-movies in the late 30s, and one of his 50s films, Them, of course, is now considered something of a low-budget science fiction classic, and eventually directing three of Frank Sinatra's most enjoyable 60s films, 1967's Tony Rome and The Detective and Lady in Cement, both from 1968. Generally seen as a safe pair of hands, Douglas's direction on Stagecoach is efficient and professional. His handling of the action sequences is especially assured, delivering an exciting chase with the titular stagecoach pursued by Indians, which culminates in a tense shootout and a climactic gunfight between Ringo and the plumbers, which doesn't feel anticlimactic after all, after everything that's gone before. Between these scenes, however, the film flags badly, with the script bogging down cast and director and far too many talky and static scenes during which the plot grinds to a halt and all the tension previously built up dispersed. Of course, the obvious question the film raises is why? Why was it thought that a remake of the original, already considered a classic by the 60s, was needed at all? What does the 1966 version bring to the screen that the 1939 film didn't? In truth, not much, apart from colour photography, a supporting cast more familiar to contemporary audiences, and perhaps more frankness with regard to Dallas's profession. We're left with no doubt that she's a prostitute rather than a showgirl. Nevertheless, in spite of its shortcomings, the 1966 stagecoach is still streets ahead of that 1986 version, which made numerous changes to both plot and characters and starred a bunch of ageing and clapped-out country and western stars. In our streamlined world today, adventure takes wings. Planes scuttle across country at amazing speed. Man has raced around the earth in less than four days. Planes roar at 400 miles an hour. Airships, streamlined trains and buses speed thousands to new frontiers. Yet well within the span of our memory, 
the screenwriter of its day, the American stagecoach, crossed the uncharted rugged west, bringing new people to a new country. What fascinating stories there were in the life of the stagecoach, and in the lives of its courageous passengers who found romance in danger and understanding in strange companionships. From the adventures of these American frontier characters, John Ford has created a truly great motion picture, Stagecoach, a drama as forceful and as true as the informer, and as gripping as the hurricane. Did you all hear what the lieutenant said? What are you trying to do, scare somebody? If you'll take my advice, ma'am, you won't take this trip. My husband is with his troops in Dry Fork. If he's in danger, I want to be with him. All right, folks. Hey, Curly, why don't you take the cuffs off the kid? He's mighty handy with a gun. You drive them horses. I'll take care of the kid. The man works all his life to get a hold of some money so that he can enjoy life and has to run into a trap like this. Trap, brother? You mean the Apaches? There's been no sign of them. You don't see any signs of them. They strike like rattlesnakes. You talk too much, Gatewood. Don't, Fritz, don't please Take me. it easy, Gatewood. We may need that fight before we get to the ferry. You wouldn't be much good in a fight, you jailbird. Oh, leave the kid alone. He's handcuffed. Ringo asked me to marry him. Is that wrong for a girl like me? If a man and woman love each other, it's all right, isn't it, Doc? Don't you know that boy's headed back for prison? Besides, if you two go in the Lordsburg together, he's got to know all about you. You didn't answer what I asked you last night. Look, kid, why don't you try to escape? I gotta go to Lordsburg. Why don't you go to my ranch and wait for me? Wait for a dead man. How many more of these fake alien videos are we going to have to endure? Because they are all fake, you know. Now this most recent one, the Mexican alleged mummified aliens, is no different. Some obviously fake alien bodies that look as if they're made from papier-mâché, and the usual unverifiable scientific tests that prove their alien origin. I have to say I do admire the sheer nerve of the grifters behind it who generated all manner of publicity by presenting all this horse shit to the Mexican parliament. If I was Mexican, I'd be bloody worried as to the calibre of my elected representatives if any of them swallowed this obvious hoax. But then, I look at some of the denizens of our own House of Commons. But hey, they subjected these aliens to scientific tests. I hear all the crackpots out there splutter. Sure, 
they had tests on samples carried out by a lab that, when questioned independently by journalists, refused to share their results with third parties as this would be breaking their confidentiality agreement with their clients. Which of course means in practice we have to take the word of these ufologists that the test results showed the samples were not terrestrial origin. Of course, if they're confident of, those, of these results, why don't they simply allow testing of samples by other independent, reputable scientific bodies who will share the results publicly and allow them to be scrutinised and peer-reviewed? That surely would be the best way of establishing their veracity. But that's the problem with all, the all of the supposed UFO evidence that reaches the public arena. Complete lack of actual verifiable facts. But facts based on hard evidence are the enemy of the conspiracy nuts. They find them very challenging. So they just try to avoid them at all costs. They're like those creationist freaks who wander through natural history museums denouncing the fossil record they are presented with as being fakes and the devil's work. Rationality doesn't come into it. Inconvenient truths can simply be arbitrarily dismissed regardless of the body of evidence backing them up which is why it is impossible to argue with conspiracy fantasists. They simply retreat further into their fantasy world, claiming that anything that contradicts their worldview is simply further evidence of a conspiracy to cover up the truth. Yet these people keep managing to get airtime in the ears of politicians. Well, we might think the idea of presenting these fake aliens in questionable test data to the Mexican parliament seems strange, and perhaps a reflection of the eccentricities of Mexican politics. Let's not forget that not long before this, we had UFO experts making all sorts of claims about crashed spaceships and secret contacts between aliens and the US government to US legislators. Not surprisingly, these extravagant claims weren't backed up by a shred of evidence. I mean, at least the Mexican cranks produced some fake alien mummies. Is the cross damaged? The cross is fine, it's okay. But every junkie in San Francisco is going to have a real good season. <laughs> it's got to be at least a million dollars worth of dope here. God damn it, I don't want drugs! I want the punk who pulled this on me. And there's going to be blood on the streets until I found it. <laughs> San Francisco. There's a job on. You got a good one, huh? I hope it's not like Chicago. Well, what about Pittsburgh? This will be a goodie. contact with you yet? No, but they will. Unless they start shooting instead of talking. Watch out! You know the problem? What is your fee? 
10% of the value. You will have returned the material. I do not deal in the profits of drug peddling. <laughs> for a bullet in your head? Charlie, this is a family matter. Continents are the boss of bosses. Oh, shit. That means we don't get paid. Well, don't you do anything for free? No, never. Well, think of it as a new and exciting experience. You have to stop Ulysses. I can no more stop him than I could stop you. questions that isn't asked often enough. What did Roger Moore do between Bond films? Now you might think that with the payday he was getting from the 007 franchise, Moore simply put his feet up and took it easy. But in reality he made a number of non-Bond films of varying quality. With his first two Bonds being released a year apart, Live and Let Die in 73 and Man with the Golden Gun in 74, it would seem he wouldn't have much chance to do anything else between those two, but he did manage to slip in Gold, also released in 1974. But with a three-year hiatus between The Spy Who Loved Me, 1970, uh, before The Spy Who Loved Me was released in 1977, and the delay was largely due to legal issues relating to Kevin McClory's ownership of the screenwrights to Thunderball, and by extension Spectre and Blofeld, he managed to fit in a bewildering variety of films of varying, of wildly varying quality. The best of them was undoubtedly the big-budget Wilbur Smith adaptation Shout at the Devil in 1976, but he also find, found time to appear in the Anglo-German romantic comedy That Lucky Touch in 1975, and was bizarrely cast in the title role of the 1976 TV movie Sherlock Holmes in New York. But the Roger Moore film from this period that has always intrigued me the most, and until recently it eluded me, was the Italian Mafia movie, The Sicilian Cross, released in 1976. Now on paper, this film looks as if it should be half decent. Clearly aimed at the international market, it co-stars Stacey Keach and features Ernest Tidyman and Randall Kleiser amongst its four credited writers, as well as featuring extensive locations shooting in San Francisco. Unfortunately, it turns out to be confused and confusing, with a plot that makes little sense, dialogue that frequently confuses matter, matters rather than clarifying them, 
and choppy editing that adds to the feeling that the whole thing consists of a series of random scenes arbitrarily assembled with little regard for story and character development, let alone basic logic. There are a number of standout individual sequences, a spectacular car chase and Keech's test drive of a car spring to mind, but they seem to be there purely to provide a spectacle rather than being natural plot developments or indeed advancing the plot in any significant way. The root of these problems is a seriously disjointed script, in all probability the result of having so many writers, both Italian and American, work on it, which sets up a main plot which every time looks as if it might be going somewhere, diverts into another subplot line, ultimately resolving, resolving none of them in, in a particularly satisfactory feeling manner. Now, the main plot is ostensibly about that titular cross, which has been imported into the US from Sicily by a local mafia chief for, um, for installation in a Catholic, Catholic church um, which serves the congregation of... of um, local fishermen of Sicilian descent. But it turns out it's also been used to smuggle a large quantity of heroin in, into the US, an act of sacrilege that enrages said mafia guy, all the other mafia capos and their capo of capos, not to mention the local cardinal. Naturally, naturally, the, the mafia Don wants to get to the bottom of it, so he calls in um, all of the other local capos and gang leaders for assistance. Meanwhile, meanwhile, little does he know, his nep nephew Ulysses, an Anglo-Italian lawyer played by, by, by Roger Moore, is also being called in by the organisation in order to run his own investigation to find out what's going on, because they suspect it's all some kind of elaborate double cross involving... Uh, Moore's uncle. Anyway, Ulysses in turn brings in his racing driver, his car, his racing car driver friend Charlie, played by Stacy Keach, to help him. Now, to complicate mat matters, it it seems, and this, it gets very confusing, the way it's presented. The heroine in the cross was actually hijacked and stolen by a third party, three other guys, before it could reach its intended destination. In fact, it turns out it's three guys working the docks and they plan to sell it themselves. Anyway, there's also a power struggle with, within the, the Mafia hierarchy, culminating the capo of capos being assassinated. And just when you think it's all drawing to a close, a past family secret is uncovered and it turns into a, into a revenge picture. Not surprisingly, the resulting action is all over the place, with more jetting off to Sicily, and what ultimately amounts to a wild goose chase, because he could have got the information he gets there in San Francisco, but there you go. Well, Keach chases the heroine on the, on the streets of San Francisco, before they come together again in the US, where they variously try to find out who assassinated the big boss, track those dockers down with the heroin in the hope they will lead them to whoever originally hid it in the cross before deciding to seize the stuff themselves with the, with the intention on Ulysses' part of using it to draw out the guilty party and on Charlie's part of selling it to get the fee they're now not going to get from the capo of capos who was going to pay them a million dollars. 
for, for resolving the issue. Meanwhile, <laughs> everybody else seems to be scheming against everybody else and double-crossing each other as the film descends into a confusing mess. It's exhausting work watching the, watching the Sicilian Cross as the plot pulls first one way, then changes tack to pull another, with none of the developments feeling as if they make any real sense, let alone be connected to each other. Events pile on pile events, which certainly give the impression that things are happening, but somehow never seem to get us anywhere. It doesn't help that the film is seriously overlong, with too many scenes feeling like padding, resulting in the pace flagging back badly every so often. Now, the idea was clearly to make some kind of buddy picture, perhaps inspired by Moore's, pe uh, Moore's pairing with Tony Curtis and the Persuaders, with a similar pairing here, with Moore's smooth and suave Ulysses contrasted with Keech's more rough and ready and streetwise Charlie. Again, harking back to the Moore and Curtis characters. Unfortunately, the script gives Roger Moore few real opportunities to deploy his trademark smooth charisma and charm, with Stacey Keats generally coming out of it better as he makes the most of his scenes as the more roguish Charlie. Moreover, despite Moore's undoubted charm, it is difficult to warm to a character who is essentially a mafia stooge, whether he's working as a lawyer for his uncle, mafia uncle or working as some kind of troubleshooter for the organisation. The end result is the duo failed to establish any kind of adversarial dynamic between the two characters. Nonetheless, as soon, so long as you don't stop to think about it too hard, the Sicilian Cross is a reasonably entertaining watch. It looks good with a superficial gloss that distracts from the confused plot and, number of well, and a num, number of well-staged action, action sequences. Now, the version I saw was the UK release version, with a running time of 105 minutes. But it's bought for US distribution by AIP, who recut it, to run just over 90 minutes and retitled it Street People. Now, having seen the AIP version, it actually does make slightly more sense because the, there's some judicious cutting gets rid of the padding so it moves more quickly. And some scenes are also rearranged so that the plot development seems to flow more smoothly. And the funny thing is, despite all the, you know, taking out nearly 15 minutes of footage, Actually, the editing feels less choppy than on the original version. And I would say, if you if you have any desire to watch the film, I would actually recommend the Street People, the AIP version, Street People. It's a it's a much smoother running film that feels as if it makes a bit more sense. Although still, once it's over and you try and think about it, you realise it all makes no sense whatsoever. Anyway. Moore, of course, Roger Moore, can continued to make films between his Bond assignments. Two between Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker in 1979, four between the latter and 1981's For Your Eyes Only, and another two between Octopussy in 83 and View to a Kill in 85. He seems to have taken a sabbatical, sabbatical between For Your Eyes Only and Octopussy. The most successful of these were those where he played variations on his suave secret agent character, such as The Wild Geese in 78 and The Sea Wolves in 1980, and also they were more ensemble pieces where he didn't have to carry the film. But attempts to do something different, like 1984's The Naked Face, or the anthology film Sunday Lovers in 1980, or even The Sicilian Cross, 
were considerably less successful. Although a couple of variations on his regular persona, his German officer with a dodgy German accent, an escape to Athena in 79, and his bearded woman disliking anti-terrorist expert in North Sea Hijack, also 1979, for instance, are both amusing and enjoyable. Despite his attempts to prove that he could do something different by the 70s, Moore was too closely identified with the Saint Brett Sinclair from The Persuaders and Bond, so the audience was reluctant to accept him in any other type of role, no matter how many times he tried. Robin Hood and Little John, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Bonnie and Clyde, and now, meet the most lovable bad guys in the business, Ulysses and Charlie, the street people. Roger Moore and Stacy Keach are Ulysses and Charlie. They're the perfect team. You want to bet I can get to you before you can get to the gun? One is polished. First we ask questions, then we drown him. Polite. Bring him up. And persuasive. Who hired you to hit Continental? Oh, I didn't hit Continental. Drown him. The other is cool, capable, and crazy. Hold on, baby. Daddy's going to take you on a cosmic ride. One has a way with words. You are the true genius of the world. Who's going to argue with you? The other has a way with wheels. They both have a way with women. Feel like doing some work? Why not? Hi. Would you like something else over here? I certainly would. When they get together, everything starts coming apart. I'm interested, but I've got to test drive it first. Ooh, I better test the brakes. From the hills of Sicily to the streets of San Francisco, they're turning things upside down. Are you crazy? And inside out. It's not bad, but I really don't like the color. They get into some tight spots. They have some close shaves and a few bad scrapes. But they always come through with flying colors. They never lose their sense of humor. The fat one is Max Murder, and his main interests are loan sharking, extortion, and an occasional murder. <laughs> well, everybody's got to have a hobby. <laughs> Roger Moore and Stacy Keach are Ulysses and Charlie. No, 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 no! Don't you, don't you? The most lovable bad guys in the business, street people. So I've been watching some more of the Benny Hill show. I mean, there's a Roku channel that streams them daily, full unexpurgated episodes, as originally broadcast on ITV, rather than the cut-down half-hour versions prepared for US showings, which often show up even in the UK. As noted before, they're fascinating to watch for a variety of reasons, not least that the culture, cultural references seem increasingly obscure. You have to be of a certain age to even know who some of the people Hill is parodying are at all. Most recently, I watched the sole episode produced in 1978. By the mid-70s, Hill was usually putting out three shows a year, but in common with other big-name TV stars of the era, he wasn't contractually tied to a specific number of shows a year. It was notable 
there was a significant reduction in the more sexist aspects. Fewer sketches with Benny leering at much younger women who were showing lots of cleavage or ass cheeks and a greater focus on parodying various TV personalities of the day, including Melvin Bragg and Dave Allen. The Dave Allen sketch in particular is interesting as it seems to be an attempt to address the whole issue of the various racial jokes and sketches that often feature prominently in earlier shows. It features Dave Allen in his trademark chair and with his trademark glass of whiskey from his BBC show Dave Allen at Large, attempting to tell a series of race jokes about blacks, Pakistanis and the Irish, but being interrupted each time by someone of that ethnicity objecting to his racism. Of course, the sketch, whatever its intent, is problematical, not least because Allen wasn't a comedian noted for telling racist jokes. Granted, he told plenty of jokes about Irishmen, but he was Irish himself. Rather, he was better known for weaving elaborate tales with a comic and often serial payoff. It's also problematical because an earlier sketch in the same show had been a variation on the format of Hill's generic Oriental character not being understood by an English interviewer because of his accent. Except this time he's replaced by Hill and Jackie Wright playing a pair of Irish brothers with thick accents. Wright is the little bloke who always gets his ball head slapped, actually was Irish. Arguably, a pair of Irishmen is less racist than Hill in Yellowface, accompanied by Bob Todd in, a black, in Blackface as a Pakistani. It's certainly less cringeworthy to watch today, but it's still playing on racial and cultural stereotypes. So does this 1978 edition of the Benny Hill show mark a step forward in its evolution? Well, perhaps. The reduction in the sexism is welcome, although we still get the traditional finale of an overweight middle-aged man being chased around by women in their underwear while Yakety Sax plays in the background. The focus on the parodies is welcome, allowing Hill to showcase his talents as a comic actor and impressionist, but the attempts to address the race-based sketches are decidedly weak and somewhat hypocritical. Interestingly, Hill once claimed after his show's cancellation in the late 80s that he wanted to move the programme's focus more towards the parodies and sketches while cutting down the sexy stuff with scantily clad girls, but Thames TV always wanted more of the latter. Their problem, apparently, was that the shows, like the 1978 show with less sexual innuendo and more celebrity parody, got lower viewing figures. Just days before he died, of course, Hill was offered a new contract by Central TV, and it would have been interesting to see what format he might have employed for those new shows.
You know, I always thought that time I saw Mickey Rourke turn up as a guest on the Italian Saturday Night Variety game show Torno Sabato represented just about the most bizarre pop culture moment I had experienced. I mean, the matter of how and why I was watching the Italian channel Aria Uno in the UK is another story entirely. I mean, it was sort of the equivalent of seeing Orson Welles doing a guest spot on the Generation game in the 1970s, which obviously he never did, or Charlton Heston appearing in one of Ernie's plays, what he wrote at the end of the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show in the, in the 1970s, which again never happened. The point being that back in the 70s, when I was growing up, it was unthinkable that international film stars would stoop to, do, to doing uh, TV, which back then was very much considered the poor cousin to theatre and cinema by the acting profession. Sure, there were instances, mainly in the US, of movie stars doing TV. James Stewart, Dick Van Dyke, Doris Day and even Henry Fonda had their own TV series. But that was the key. They had shows built around them over which they had a degree of artistic control. The idea of one of them randomly turning up on a light entertainment show seemed highly unlikely, unless said show was fronted by another star or pal of theirs, of course. The only movie stars who appeared on TV, it seemed, were those whose careers were on the skids. The natural progression was to move from TV to films, it was accepted, not the other way round. But getting back to my original point, Mickey Rourke on that Italian TV show, well, the other day I encountered a bizarre moment in pop culture history that topped that. Andy Warhol, guest starring as himself on an episode of The Love Boat. Yep, you heard that right. Andy Warhol on The Love Boat. Possibly the cheesiest of all 70s and 80s primetime US TV series. The show was, of course, famous, or infamous even, for its guest stars, who uniquely for a US TV show, I think, were listed before the regular cast on the opening titles. And they were usually familiar TV faces of the era, with the odd faded film star everyone thought was dead by then, like Cornell Wilde, Donald O'Connor, Stuart Granger, for instance. They were thrown in, some of them were thrown in for good measure. I mean, even dear old Trevor Howard eventually got so got hard up enough to put in an appearance in an episode. But seeing pop art icon Warhol turn up on those credits was a real shocker. I mean, we'd already had Mr. and Mrs. Cunningham from Happy Days listed, not to mention Andy Griffith in Cloris Leachman and Milton Berle. And the regular audience was doubtless thinking, Jesus, it can't get any better than, than this. And then up pops Warhol. And it isn't just a fleeting appearance either. He plays an integral part of the Cunningham storyline. OK, I know Tom Bosley and Marion Ross were not playing the Cunninghams, but they might as well have been because it was the same basic characters of a middle-aged, middle-class couple from, you know, conservative with a small C couple from middle America. Anyway, it turns out in their youth that Mrs. C had been part of Warhol's crew and was photographed by him and indeed appeared in one of his films. Obviously, Mr. C isn't impressed. I mean, perhaps Fonzie would have been broader-minded. Anyway, Warhol is Warhol has a fair amount of dialogue, which he delivers badly and is clearly uncomfortable playing himself. Still, when you think about it, Warhol appearing on the love boat makes perfect sense. As a product of the US networks, the show was a prime example of the sort of crass commercialism that his art reveled in. Truly a match made in heaven. Thank you. 
Exciting and new Come aboard We're expecting you And love Life's sweetest reward Let it flow It floats back to you Something for everyone Set a course for adventure Your mind on a new romance And love Won't hurt anymore It's an open smile On a friendly shore It's love So, when is a packet of chocolate-covered peanuts not a packet of chocolate-covered peanuts? When you try and buy it in a Tesco Metro, apparently. Now, the other day I was in the aforementioned Tesco Metro, where I noticed that the chocolate-covered peanuts had been reduced in price. So I made a snap decision to buy a pack with my newspaper, which is the main reason for going in there. Taking them to the cash desk, the newspaper's barcode scanned without problem, but the peanuts failed to. After attempts to attempt the barcode manually, the youth manning the till told me that the product I was trying to buy was not on the system, so as far as the store was concerned, didn't exist, and therefore couldn't be bought. Now, I tried pointing out that the packet of chocolate-covered peanuts was right there in front of us both, and therefore did exist. I mean, we both agreed that we could see it, so it wasn't a hallucination on my part. When this didn't work, I tried pointing out that the peanuts must be for sale, as they had a whole bloody shelf of them, prominently displayed with a clearly marked price. Moreover, the packet was clearly marked Tesco, so it was an own brand product. So how could he claim that it didn't exist? What was the alternative explanation for their presence? Was someone sneaking into the store with packets of chocolate-covered peanuts with fake Tesco packaging concealed about their person and secretly placing them on the shelves? Why would anyone do that? Of course... It was all to no avail. The peanuts didn't officially exist. Fearing for my sanity, let alone my blood pressure, I paid for my newspaper and left the shop, leaving the supposedly non-existent nuts behind. It's one of those incidents that turn you into a raging Luddite, railing against modern commerce where if something isn't registered on a, com on a computer system, then it doesn't exist. I mean, what have happened to the good old days of mechanical tills of the cashier rang up the price manually and those little flags popped up with the total and the bell rang. I was left pondering whether this chocolate-covered peanut phenomenon was simply a local glitch confined to that particular Tesco Metro store or whether it was nationwide. If I had gone to the main Tesco store on one of the one of the edge of the town retail parks and tried to buy an identical pack of chocolate-covered peanuts, would it too have been deemed to be non-existent existent when I went to the checkout? I honestly couldn't be bothered to find out. Eventually I bought some chocolate covered peanuts elsewhere. I was in one of my local Lidl's, we have three, 
later that later in the week and they had chocolate covered peanuts for 20 pence less than Tesco's reduced price for the same amount. I can't deny that I experienced some trepidation when they went through the checkout, but they went through with my other items without incident. So clearly, chocolate covered peanuts do exist in Lidl. on Benny Hill before we leave the subject. Now, as I've mentioned before, I've recently had the opportunity to watch all 58 or so episodes of the Benny Hill show that were made for Thames over a near 20-year period in broadcast order. It's been an interesting experience as Benny Hill seemed to be a big part of my childhood. Certainly his shows were seen as must-see events in the early 70s when he was probably the UK's most popular comic. In retrospect, the shows are problematic, not just for their off-sighted sexism and objectification of women, but also the casual racism, unfortunately though very typical of 70s UK TV output. But as I mentioned earlier, um, as the show entered the 80s, there did seem to be an attempt on Hill's part to change the format, with more emphasis on the parodies of contemporary TV shows and personalities, and the black and yellow face dialed down. But there seemed to be a regression. After experimenting with replacing the stock Chinaman, um, you know, obviously played by Hill in yellow face and false teeth, who couldn't pronounce English properly for comic effect, variously with, he's variously replaced with thick-accented Irishman and badly congested Englishman, the character made a sudden return. It seemed more, it seemed more jarring than ever to see this routine repeated in the 80s. Of course, Hill later maintained that his attempts to change the show were constantly met with resistance from Thames. He feared that changing what had previously been a winning formula might threaten the ratings. And perhaps this was the case. In his later years, there was a clear tension between, between newer material that tried to be innovative and older style sketches and routines featuring lots of female flesh, unsubtle double entendres and sexual stereotyping. There's no doubt that Hill was right in wanting to update the format. There's a growing backlash, initially from critics, later from the public, to the cruder aspects of his show. Yet there was a double standard at work in the, in the, in, in the uh, world of television. At the same time as Hill was being criticised, the self-same critics were lavishing praise on Kenny Everett's TV shows. The Kenny Everett video show on ITV and then the than the Kenny Everett television show when he moved to the BBC, which contained just as much unsubtle sexual innuendo, objectification of women, 
and also featured a troupe of scantily clad female dancers performing provocative routines. A situation which Hill addressed on his own show with a sketch parodying the Everett shows, featuring Henry McGee as a surrogate Kenny Everett. Hill also seemed to address the sexist nature of much of his output, with sketches such as the one featuring Tanya and her performing men, a troupe of... um, middle-aged men composed of Hill and his usual sidekicks dressed in long underwear and socks being put through routines like big cats in a circus and objectified in the same way as women traditionally were in in his um, in his shows. There's also a sketch featuring a handyman which is being edited just being edited and we hear the editors and voiceover discussing how to cut it down to length as we watch it the narrative and action constantly being reshaped often to the annoyance of the lead character ultimately of course the problem with the benny hill show is that it comes from another era when standards were different back in the 70s the sort of casual races sexism and racism of the show represented the accepted norm hill himself though was right to recognize that as his show entered the 80s He had to reshape the material in line with changing times, but it always seemed to be one step forward and two steps back, possibly due to pressure from Thames. Taken in its proper historical context, the Benny Hill show can still amuse. Hill was a great physical comedian, and the sketches highlighting this and the carefully arranged sight gags still work well today, as do the comic songs, all of which were written by by Hill, Indeed, he wrote the whole show himself, every one of them. The parodies are often highly perceptive, if you're old enough to remember the shows and personalities being parodied, frequently playing on the conventions of TV production for comic effect and can still abuse. His love of old cinema and comedians like W.C. Fields and Laurel and Hardy also comes through strongly and is still very effective in the sketches where he, he emulates their style. Likewise, his occasional monologues delivered out of character and in front of the curtain are still amusing and often clever, giving us the closest glimpse of the real Benny Hill that we're ever likely to get, perhaps. The bottom line is that I retain an enormous soft spot for Benny Hill. While some of the material might now make me flinch, there is never any real harm or malice in it. It's all delivered by Hill with the glee of a naughty schoolboy, which, in essence, sums up the whole ethos of his show. Schoolboy smut and humour designed simply to get a laugh or even a snigger from a grown-up audience. It's all in the tradition of such British humour, which includes carry-on films, saucy seaside postcards and 70s sex comedies. We might profess not to really approve of it, but we laugh anyway, even though we suspect we shouldn't be laughing at it. Finally, by all accounts, in real life, Benny Hill was actually a very nice guy, modest and somewhat introverted. His work, making people laugh, was very much his life. Moreover, according to the ladies themselves, he never tried it on with any of his female cast. He was also, to be at least, a local lad coming from Eastleigh and living in the Southampton area for much of his life. Finally, his obvious dislike of Jim Davidson, and if you don't know who Jim Davidson is, you are very lucky. This dislike was famously expressed in his diaries, but also in several disparaging references to the alleged comic and sketches in some of the later shows. That dislike of Davis is something 
I can always adore him for.